recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 31st, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before we begin tonight, I would like to make a quick explanation of my pronunciation of the Greek word, Galatahi, which we usually see in English as Galatians. When I first started to study Koine Greek, it was in isolation rather than in a university. So sounding out the words in my head, I decided at that time it was best to use the pronunciation guide provided by James Strong in his famous concordance. Since then, I have seen alternate pronunciation guides, mostly based on what they call modern Greek, which to me is half Turk. And to me, Strong's shall remain the authority which I use, since for various reasons, I must reject modern Greek as being anything like classical Greek. And because I find Strong's pronunciation guide to make good linguistic sense. An example of modern Greek and, and classical Greek in pronunciation being nothing like one another is Istanbul, which is actually Constantinople, and, and it was contracted by the Turks to Istanbul. A lot of Greek words, since the Turks had occupied Greek, Greece for 500 years or better, in certain parts it was more like 600 years, a lot of the Greek language has suffered in very much the same way. Of course, the word Galatahi ends in the letter combination alpha iota or iota, as most people incorrectly say. And it's plural for galates. And Strong does not give pronunciations for the plural forms of words in his dictionary. I understand that there are many who would pronounce Galatahi as Galate or Galate, and with them, I do not agree. The AI diphthong in Greek is not a replacement for the letter eta, which is pronounced A, like in Galates. The same crowd also mispronounces the word Zeon. But if one turns to the pronunciation guide provided by Strong in his original concordance, which is on the very first page of his Greek dictionary under the heading Greek Articulation, there is a guide for pronouncing Greek letters and diphthongs, diphthongs being a combination of two vowels. There, Strong says in section three of his guide that the alpha Iota letter combination should be pronounced as ahi, which in English he expresses as a short A followed by a long E. Therefore, this is the way I always pronounce that letter combination. Examining the rest of Strong's pronunciation guide, I would also be vindicated for the way in which I say Zeon, while my critics would rather follow 
the Jews. With that, we will commence with the Epistles of Paul, Galatians, Part 2, The Works of the Law. It's more important to get this right than the pronunciation of certain ancient words. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul had begun to establish his credentials and his authority as a preacher of the gospel of Christ. Here he shall continue to do this, and he did it because, as we shall see here in this chapter, he is addressing the Judaizers who had obviously infiltrated among the Galatians in order to bind them to the circumcision and other rituals of the Old Testament law. Ostensibly, these Judaizers had credentials of their own, and therefore Paul, writing in opposition to them, was compelled to present the evidence of his own legitimacy. At Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul spoke of his time in Jerusalem as it was described at Acts 9, verse 26, where he had said, Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to relate an account to Cephas, Cephas being the Hebrew word meaning stone, which in Greek is Petros, or Peter and remained with him 15 days. And here, Paul is talking about his visit to Jerusalem in Acts 15, where he continues in Galatians chapter 2, and he says, Then, after 14 years, I had again gone up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also, and I had gone up after a revelation and laid upon them the good message which I proclaim among the nations, but privately to those of repute, lest in any way I strive or have strived in vain. You would strive in vain, opposing your brethren publicly without first seeing them privately when there is a disagreement. Paul must be referring to the events described by Luke in Acts chapter 15, and especially in Acts chapter 15, 12, verse 12, where Luke wrote, Then all the multitude was silent, and they heard Barnabas and Paul relating as many signs and wonders as Yahweh had done among the nations through them. It is recorded in Acts chapter 15, that while in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas were teaching former pagans converted to Christianity that they did not have to be circumcised and follow the other rituals of the law of Moses, but that some had come down from Judea teaching the brethren that if you would not be circumcised in the custom of Moses, you are not able to be saved. Then we see it recorded in Acts 15.2 that then upon their coming no little discord and debate by Paul and Barnabas against them, they ordered Paul and Barnabas and some of the others among them to go up to Jerusalem to the ambassadors or apostles and elders concerning this debate. 
Once the apostles arrive in Jerusalem, the debate continues as we read in Acts 15.5. Then there arose some who were persuaded by the sect of the Pharisees, saying that it is necessary to circumcise them and instruct them to keep the law of Moses. Therefore, as it is further recorded in Acts chapter 15, after hearing Paul and Barnabas, the Apostle James responded in agreement with them. And we read from Acts 15, verse 13. And after their silence, Jacob, or James, responded, saying, Men, brethren, you listen to me. Simeon, another name for Peter, Simon Peter. Sumian is the Aramaic version of the name, as opposed to Simon, which is the Greek version. Sumian has declared just how, at the first, Yahweh considered to take from among the nations a people in his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After these things, I shall return, and I shall rebuild the tent of David, which is fallen, and I shall rebuild its ruins, and I shall set it up again, that those remaining of men seek Yahweh, and all the nations whom have my name labeled upon them, the Israel Christian nations, says Yahweh doing these things known from of old, on which account I judge not to trouble those from among the nations who turn to Yahweh, but to enjoin them to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from fornication, and from that which is strangled, and from blood. For Moses, from generations of old, has those who are proclaiming him in each city in the assembly halls being read each and every Sabbath. Later, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 21, at verses 20 through 22, it is clear that Paul and James had a disagreement over whether going forward, the Judeans, those who were born to parents in the law, should be brought up under the rituals of the law. However, there was never any dispute concerning those who were not Judeans, which we see right here in Acts chapter 15, James agreed with Paul and Barnabas. Ostensibly, in spite of the agreement which the apostles had come to, which is recorded in Acts chapter 15, there were still Judaizers coming out from Judea who sought the contrary and had maintained the same attitude seen with these earlier Judaizers in Acts 15.5. Galatians verse 3, chapter 2. Yet not even Titus, who being with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised by those privily introduced false brethren, such who infiltrate to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Yahshua, in order that they may enslave us, like by installing a central bank to whom not even for a minute did we yield in subjection, at which the truth of the good message would persevere for the sake of you. 
The Greek phrase, pros horon, which is here in the Christianian New Testament for a minute, may have even been read for a second. Even though the word hora is the origin of the English word hour, or the Latin word hora, which means an hour, at that time it did not denote exclusively an exact segment of the day as we know it to today. The Greeks had no word for minute or second. They used hora to denote any period of time, whether part of a year, part of a season, or a part of a day. Titus, mentioned here, is going to Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas, in reference to the Acts chapter 15 event. Titus is not at all referred to by the name of Titus in the book of Acts. Although Paul mentions his presence with him several times in his second epistle to the Corinthians, and he is also ostensibly the same Titus seen in 2 Corinthians who is the recipient of the epistle addressed to Titus. In the past, I have imagined that this Titus is the same man whom some of the better manuscripts identify as Titus Justus or Titius Eustus, which in the King James Version of Acts chapter 18, verse 7, is only Justice. This is a possibility. They may be the same person. However, if it is true, then it would mean that Paul knew Titus long before Paul had arrived in Corinth, where Justice was living next to the synagogue when Paul began his ministry there. So the two individuals are not necessarily the same person, but the possibility does indeed exist. It is evident that where Paul said, then, after 14 years, I had gone up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. That he must have been referring to the events of Acts chapter 15, because he and Barnabas had also split right after that time, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 15, verse 39 where they had gone their separate ways. When Titus accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, there were certainly others as well, including Luke himself. But Luke had only written that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others among them, meaning among the Christians at Antioch, had made the trip, as we see in Acts 15, verse 2. So here in Galatians, Paul gives us two periods of time where we see that three years had transpired between his conversion on the road to Damascus and his first appearance in Jerusalem. And that is a period which covers only some of the events recorded in Acts chapter 9. And then there is a period of 14 years, which, according to Paul's ambiguous language, can either include or can be added to the end of those first three years. So there are either 14 years, 
between Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus and his going to Jerusalem, recorded in Acts chapter 15, or there are 17 years if his intent is to add the 14 years mentioned here to the first three years mentioned, rather than considering them inclusively. However, these events can be dated, and we learn that the total time could only have been 14 years and not 17 years. So where Paul counts three years, he's counting from the conversion on the road to Damascus. And when he says 14 years, he's still counting from the conversion on the road to Damascus, not to the end, from the end of the three years. We know, for instance, that Paul's sojourn in Corinth, where he had spent a year and a half, could have ended no later than 52 AD. We know that because that is when the term of Gallio had ended. The proconsul of Achaia, who is mentioned in Acts chapter 18. When we wrote, when we presented our commentary on Acts chapter 18 two years ago, we wrote the following. There was an inscription found at Delphi in Greece and first published in 1905, which is known as the Gallio inscription. This inscription represents part of a letter from the Emperor Claudius concerning Gallio himself, written in 52 AD, and that is certain from the time of Claudius's term as emperor in Rome, which is recorded in the inscription itself. And it establishes with certainty that Gallio was proconsul of Achaia in 51 and 52 AD. His term, according to several scholars of the period, very likely began in the summer of 51 AD. This accords with the general narrative of Acts and of Paul's chronology as it was transmitted in the epistle to the Galatians, which, he, which puts the Acts chapter 15 visit to Jerusalem counting backwards through, from, from 51 AD through Paul's journeys to about 47 AD. And we know that... Um, with all certainty, in Acts chapter 12, and we'll probably mention it again later here, that Herod Agrippa I died in 44 AD, and that's when Acts chapter 12 happened. Luke chapter 3 informs us that the ministry of Yahshua Christ began in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, from which we can reckon it to have begun in the late summer or perhaps the early fall of 28 AD, the ministry of Christ, the, the 15th year of Tiberius started that summer. Having had a ministry of three and a half years, which is determined from the recounting of the Passover feasts mentioned in the Gospel of John, 
and also from other sources, such as Daniel chapter 9, the crucifixion most likely took place in the spring of 32 AD, three and a half years after the fall of 28 AD, or I should say the autumn of 28 AD. Therefore, we do not have enough time for the events of Paul's ministry to consume 17 years between the crucifixion and the events of Acts chapter 15. And then, according to the narrative of Acts chapters 15 through 17, at least a couple of additional years to the beginning of his 18-month sojourn in Corinth, which must have begun no earlier than either mid-49 and no later than early 50 AD for Gallio to still be in office towards the end of the 18 months. This is especially true since after the first Christian Pentecost, the stoning of Stephen, and then the events on a road to Damascus, which led to Paul's conversion, probably require at least a year to have transpired as they were described. But if we understand Paul's 14 years as being inclusive of the first three-year period, which he mentions here, and we understand that Paul was converted in 33 or maybe 34 AD, everything falls into place. And the events described in Acts chapter 15 very likely took place in 47 AD. This also establishes the fact that this letter to the Galatians and Paul's subsequent visit to Galatia, which is anticipated here in the later chapters of this epistle, must have, this epistle must have been written not only after the events of Acts chapter 15, but also after Paul had an opportunity to visit Antioch once again. And this we shall see in the balance of this chapter. Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. Now, from those reputed to be something, whatsoever they were then, Paul reflecting back on the time of Acts 15, makes not one difference to me. Yahweh does not receive a man's stature. Therefore, to me, those of repute are conferred nothing. And once again, the Greek word prosopon, which means the face, the visage, one's countenance, one's look, or one's outward appearance or beauty, is therefore stature here. It refers to the look of a man or to his status in life, his position, and not to the person himself. Paul's adversaries in Acts chapter 15 were not James and Peter. Rather, they were the Judaizing Pharisees, which we had seen mentioned in verses 2 and 5 of that chapter. Yet, here Paul certainly seems to say that even if James and Peter 
those reputed to be pillars, as he calls them here in verse 7, and he later includes John, had supported the Pharisees in the manners which had been disputed in Acts 15, Paul would not have capitulated to them and violated the meaning of the gospel as he had come to understand it. Paul saying that he would have stuck to his guns. Verse 7. But on the contrary, having seen that I have been entrusted with the good message of the uncircumcised, just as Petros or Peter of the circumcised, and then Paul makes a parenthetical remark in verse 8. He who has been operating within Petros for a message of the circumcised has also operated within me for the nations. And that word rendered as message in verse 8 is the Greek word apostale, which can refer to either the message or to the mission of the person bearing the message. So in the King James Version, it is apostleship. Here Paul informs us that instead of supporting the Judaizing Pharisees, on the contrary, as he puts it, the apostles accepted his position as being the legitimate position, and the apostles offered him their friendship. Quite often, the critics of Paul of Tarsus portray the division reading this epistle they portray the division which is described here as a two-party division. Paul versus the so-called real Christians who were the apostles in Jerusalem. In fact, it is clear from the records and it is clear from the epistles that there were three parties involved, Paul and Barnabas and those who were with them being the first party, and then there were the Judaizing Pharisees being the second party, and then the original apostles who were called to intervene, and after investigating the matter, they chose the side of Paul. Therefore, it was a three-party division which quickly melted into two parties, and only the critics of Paul are left on the side of the Pharisaical Jews. However, Paul is also asserting that whatever the outcome of the dispute in Antioch and Jerusalem, which is described in Acts chapter 15, he was resolved that he was going to maintain his position. It's incredible that the critics of Paul who claim to be identity Christians, slander Paul as a Jew, when Paul was the only apostle on record actively defending Christians against the Judaizers, those who would keep us bound to the rituals of the law and the circumcision. Verse 9. And knowing The favor being given to me, Jacob and Cephas and John, those reputed to be pillars, had given right hands of fellowship to me and to Barnabas, that we are for 
the nations, and they for the circumcised. Only that we should remember the poor, the same thing which I had then been anxious to do. Some of the uh, codexes, quite interestingly, change the order of the apostles here. The Codex Alexandrinus has only James and John in verse 9, no mention of Peter. Where the 3rd century papyrus P46 has James, Peter, and John rather than James, Cephas, and John. The Codex Beze has Peter, James, and John, and that seems to be a product of Roman propaganda, which we will discuss further on. The commission which Paul is referring to here, received by himself and Barnabas, apostles to the nations, is mentioned even earlier in the account in Acts. First we see at the very end of Acts chapter 11, and I'll quote from verse 27, and in those days the prophets came down from Jerusalem into Antioch, and there arose one of them named Hagabus, who indicated through the Spirit that a great famine is going to come upon the whole inhabited world, which happened in the time of Claudius. Now, Claudius was emperor from 41 through 54 AD. Herod Agrippa I, the Herod of Acts chapter 12, died in the spring of 44 AD. Verse 29, Acts 11. Then, of the students, just as anyone prospered, each of them set aside for supplies to send to those brethren dwelling in Judea, which they did then, sending to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saulus, or Paul. Then we see at the very end of Acts chapter 12, right after the death of Herod Agrippa I, so this happened in 44 AD, and Barnabas and Saulus, returned to Jerusalem from Antioch, completing the supply, taking along with him John, who was called Mark. So this very likely happened in 44 AD, shortly after Herod died. And this seems to be what Paul is referring to here in Galatians chapter 2, where he says in verse 10, that only that we should remember the poor, the same thing which I had then been anxious to do. And then we read in the very next verse, which happens to be the beginning of Acts chapter 13, and there were throughout the assembly, which was in Antioch, prophets and teachers, namely Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, probably had black hair, and Lucas, the Corinthian, and Manian, a childhood companion of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saulus. We all have bad friends at one time in our lives. And upon their performing services for the prince and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke, Now set apart for me Barnabas and Saulus for the work which I have called them. Then fasting and praying and laying the hands upon them, they released them. And this is where the ministry to the uncircumcised is begun by Paul and Barnabas. 
But the work for which I have called them, as Yahweh says, must have already been determined, as well as the agreement among the original apostles, as Barnabas and Saul are connected to the account given in Acts chapter 11, where Peter professes the realization that the nation should receive the gospel of Christ. And immediately, Barnabas is sent to Tarsus to retrieve Paul. Now, concerning his interactions with the other and original apostles, everything which Paul had discussed here in the epistle to the Galatians thus far had clearly transpired during or prior to the events which are recorded in Acts chapter 15. We see that it is recorded in Acts 15 too, that then, upon their coming, no little discord and debate by Barnabas and Paul against them, meaning by Barnabas and Paul arguing with the Judaizers from Judea, they ordered Paul and Barnabas and some of the others among them to go up to Jerusalem to the ambassadors and elders concerning this debate. Now, these words are important to understand the timing of the rest of Paul's remarks here in Galatians chapter 2. Because if any of the original apostles, specifically Peter, were in Antioch, the wording would have had to have been different with the situation. Yet the wording here, and in subsequent portions of Acts chapter 15, infers that Peter, who was the first of the apostles to speak in Jerusalem in relation to this dispute, Peter was one of the elders in Jerusalem that the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, were sent to. So the events described by Paul here from verse 11 of Galatians chapter 2 could not have taken place before this dispute was settled, which is recorded in Acts chapter 15. And Paul says in verse 11, But when Cephas, and some manuscripts have Peter here also, but when Cephas had come to Antioch, this couldn't have happened back in Acts 15. It couldn't have happened at any time so far. But when Cephas had come to Antioch, I had confronted him personally because he was condemning himself. For before some who were to come from James, he had eaten in common with the nations. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, being in fear of those of the circumcised. And also the rest of the Judeans had acted with him, so that even Barnabas had been led away by them in their hypocrisy. Now some of the um, pronouns are different in a few manuscripts. The notes will be posted with the program. These events, which Paul describes here, are not recorded in the book of Acts or anywhere else in Scripture, only here. But we do learn from the account at the end of Acts chapter 15 
and especially from Acts 15.35, that after returning from Jerusalem to Antioch, that Paul and Barnabas had indeed spent a considerable time there before Barnabas sailed to Cyprus with Mark. And Paul had departed with Silas for Syria and Cilicia and points further west, recorded in Acts 16. We are only told up to this point that Paul had a disagreement with Barnabas over the value of Mark to the ministry, and that for that reason, they, went, they each went their own way, which is recorded in Acts 15, verses 37 through 39. This is all that we see recorded, and so far as we could tell from Luke's language in Acts 16, seeing that he was with Paul then, in those travels, that Luke was also very likely here with Paul in Antioch at the end of Acts chapter 15 to record whatever had transpired. We have already compared the chronology and the records of Acts with all of the comments regarding the events related by Paul in regards to his ministry found up to this point in his epistle to the Galatians. Here it is evident that up through Acts chapter 15, Paul had the revelation that the formerly pagan Christians, upon turning to Christianity, should not take upon themselves the rituals found in the law of Moses. With this, the apostles agreed in Acts chapter 15. However, it is also evident in Acts chapter 16, that up to this point, and this is important because it's important to the development of Paul's doctrines, up to this point, Paul has not developed the idea that the Judeans themselves should also cease from the rituals of the law, as we see it recorded in Acts chapter 16 that Paul had circumcised Timothy as it is recorded in the opening verses of Acts chapter 16 where we read, and then Paul and Silas and Luke and the others with them, and then they arrived in Derbe and in Lystra, and behold, there was a certain student there with the name Timotheus, Timothy, the Timothy of the epistles, a son of a faithful Judean woman, but of a Greek father who was accredited by the brethren in Lystra and Iconion, and Paul desired for him to depart with him. And taking him, he circumcised him on account of the Judeans who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So, as he describes here, in Galatians chapter 2, if Paul had confronted Peter in Antioch before this point in his ministry in Acts 16, where he circumcised Timothy, he would have been a hypocrite for having circumcised Timothy. But there is no indication in Acts chapter 15 that Paul had already developed the idea that Judeans should part from the rituals of the law. And then, in Acts chapter 16, Paul made certain to have Timothy circumcised because his mother was a Judean 
and on account of the Judeans. So Paul must have developed the idea that Judeans should also depart from the works of the law. At a time later than the sojourn in Antioch, recorded in Acts chapter 15, and the encounter where Timothy was circumcised, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 16. Paul must have developed the idea that Judeans should depart from the works of the law after Acts 16. Furthermore, as Galatians chapter 4, as in Galatians chapter 4, Paul reflects back on his having been to Galatia in the past, where he said that he had preached the gospel. And since the first record of his being in Galatia is in Acts 16.6, then this epistle must have been written after the events which are recorded in Acts 16.6. In Acts chapter 21, in an account which transpired over 10 years after the account in Jerusalem recorded in Acts chapter 15, we see that same fear of the circumcision in James at Acts 21 verses 18 through 26 which Paul exhibited in Acts 16. Only in Acts 21, at verses 20 through 22, we see it being acknowledged that Paul was teaching Judeans to depart from the rituals of the law. Therefore, the events described here, where Paul relates his confrontation with Peter, must have taken place sometime after the circumcision of Timothy, sometime after Paul visits Galatia for the first time in Acts 16.6, and before Paul wrote this epistle, and before the, the Paul's, well, other circumstances with his confrontation with James in Acts 21. Therefore, Evidently, only one opportunity is left in Paul's ministry for the confrontation with Peter, and that is in Acts chapter 18. And during the events of, recorded in Acts chapter 18, Luke is not with Paul, for Paul had left Luke behind in Philippi after the arrest of himself and Silas, which is recorded in the later parts of Acts chapter 16. And when they are released from jail, they go back to the house of Lydia, where Luke is, and, and greet the brethren, and they leave. And they go to Greece, and Luke is not with him again until their reunion in Acts chapter 20, some years later. At least it's not recorded that he sees them again. So although none of the details of his journey and his stay are recorded in Acts, in chapter 18 it is mentioned that Paul once again visits Antioch for the last time. 
This is the only opportunity that he had in which to meet Peter as he describes having confronted him here in Galatians chapter 2. Evidently, he also saw Barnabas there, as we see here in Galatians 2.13. We also see in Acts 18.23, after his sojourn in Antioch, that Paul had spent some time, Luke calls it some time, in Antioch on this visit, which could be days or weeks or even months. There's really no telling. And then Paul goes on through Galatia and Phrygia. It is also apparent, although it cannot be asserted with absolute certainty, that it is here in Antioch that Paul wrote this epistle to the Galatians in Acts 18.22 and 23, before he departed from Antioch and arrived in Galatia. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, in verse 20, I had desired to be present with you even now, and to change my tone because I am perplexed with you. And he indeed goes on to visit them after leaving Antioch, which is only briefly recorded in Acts 18, verse 23. Aside from expressing his desire to visit the Galatians later on in chapter 4, Paul says here in verse 11 of this chapter, but when Cephas had come to Antioch, as if Paul was still in Antioch when he wrote, those words. This must be contrasted to the statement in verse 6, where Paul reflects back, referring to the apostles, and reflects back by saying, whatever they were then, speaking of the past. This may be dismissed as being circumstantial. However, for the many other reasons given here, especially connected to the doctrine being expressed and the development of Paul's doctrine through the book of Acts, I feel safe in asserting that the epistle to the Galatians was written at the time that Paul was in Antioch, as it is recorded in Acts 18.22, and that is also when the confrontation recorded here that Paul had with Peter must have occurred. Verse 14, Galatians chapter 2. But when I had seen that they did not walk uprightly, according to the truth of the good message, I had said to Cephas, or some manuscripts have, Peter, once again, before them all, if you, being a Judean, live like a foreigner and not like a Judean, how do you compel the nations to imitate the Judeans? We really have to think about this verse because it's a perfectly literal translation. That word foreigner is the Greek word Ethnikos, it means like those of the nations, or heathens in that sense. As Paul had said above in verse 12, Peter had eaten in common with the nations, 
meaning with the uncircumcised, because the people from the nations converting to Christianity were not being circumcised. Peter had eaten in common with the nations until some who were to come from James or Jacobus, meaning that some men sent by James had come to Antioch, upon which Peter withdrew and separated himself from the Christians who were not circumcised, being in fear of those of the circumcised. This James was the brother of Jude, and both were the half-brothers of Christ through their common mother. Yes, Mary had at least six more children after Christ, male and female. It is these men to whom Paul refers as the brethren of the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Each of these men also wrote epistles, I'm sorry, which are found in the New Testament. James was one of the original 12 apostles listed by Matthew, chapter 10, and Luke, in chapter 6, as James, the son of Alphaeus, where he's also mentioned as being the brother of Jude. But he is not mentioned by name in the Gospel of John. With this, we should notice that Peter had never played the role of Pope which the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, much later and quite falsely ascribes to him. And from Acts chapter 15, we should also see that while Peter spoke first in response to Paul and Barnabas, James had the last word there as well. Therefore, it seems that while there is certainly no Christian Pope, James and not Peter seems to have been the dominant personality among these apostles. And Paul, when he writes the, their names, he always writes in this chapter, he always writes James first, even though some of the late manuscripts have changed the order of the names, namely the Codex Beze. In spite of what James said about the Converts of the Nations in Acts chapter 15, over 10 years later, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 21, at verses 18 through 24, it is clear that James had maintained that the Judeans must continue to keep the law of Moses, where Paul visits James in Jerusalem in 58 AD, and Luke wrote, and on the next day, Paul went in with us to Jacob, and all the elders were present. And greeting them, he explained about each one of those things which Yahweh had done among the nations through his ministry. And those hearing it extolled Yahweh and said to him, You consider, brethren, how many myriads there are among the Judeans who are believing, and all being zealous of the law. And they are informed concerning you, 
meaning Paul, that you teach departure from Moses for the Judeans throughout all the nations, saying for them not to circumcise the children nor to walk in the customs. So what is it? By all means, they shall hear that you have come. Therefore do this which we say to you. There are among us four men having a vow upon themselves. Taking them, you must be purified, which is a, a ritual of the temple. You must be purified with them and pay the expense for them that they shave their heads. And all shall know that that which they are informed concerning you is nothing, but that you yourself also walk in line keeping the law. Now, there are other places where it is evident that Paul believed he should keep the law because he was circumcised and born keeping the law. But he was teaching that in going forward, new Judean children born to Judean Christian parents should not be circumcised. This seems to be the origin. This account in Acts 28, in, in, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 21, seems to be the origin of the Judean Christians, later known as Ebionites. There in Acts chapter 21, it is evident that Paul complied with James's wishes, ostensibly since he recognized that James was his elder. But Paul certainly did not agree with James in his epistles. The apostle James was slain by the Sadducees immediately after the death of the Roman procurator Festus in 62 AD. Here it is, 58 AD. So as late as 58 AD, James was insisting that Judeans who turned to Christ should continue to keep the law. But the Judeans of the time were strictly keeping the law, as we read it in Genesis chapter 17, from verse 14, and the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We see this in practice in the opening verses of Acts chapter 11 of events which had transpired while Paul was still in Tarsus. So this cannot be what Paul refers to here in Galatians chapter 2, where after Peter had converted the Roman household of Cornelius, we read, and the ambassadors and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the nations also accepted the word of Yahweh. Then, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying that you went in with uncircumcised men and ate together with them. So we see that one New Testament example. There are many others in the histories of Josephus and in other sources which attest that the circumcised Judeans would never share a table or share the communion of the uncircumcised. Therefore, we see that the law, if Judeans kept it, the law precluded Judeans from having any 
community whatsoever with the uncircumcised. And later, in Acts chapter 15, all the apostles had agreed that the pagans of the nations turning to Christ should not be circumcised, but keeping the law, James, and all those in Jerusalem, even though they were professing to be Christians, would therefore not even eat with any of those dispersed Israelites of the nations turning to Christ, since they were not being circumcised. This clearly creates a paradox, and Paul realized that. At some point in his ministry, after he had circumcised Timothy, and as it is recorded well, well, the circumcision of Timothy is recorded in Acts chapter 16. And before he returned to Antioch, as it is recorded in Acts 18, verse 22, at some point in his ministry during that time, Paul had realized that neither should Judeans keep the circumcision or the other works of the law, as he called the rituals and other ceremonial aspects of the law of Moses. While it cannot be established with certainty, this revelation seems to have come while Paul was in Corinth, where he had met Achilla, Achilla and Priscilla, Achilla and Priscilla, who were Judean Christians who had been at Rome for some time before being compelled to depart from Rome under the edict of Claudius, as we read in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. We may even infer that meeting them had actually led to Paul's revelation concerning Judeans and the works of the law. Paul's first two surviving epistles were written to the Thessalonians while he was in Corinth. And 1 Thessalonians was actually written rather early in Paul's sojourn to Corinth because he remarked upon being left at Athens, where he was just before he got to Corinth. And those two epistles to the Thessalonians, Paul's first and second surviving epistles, do not reflect any debate concerning the law. Paul's third surviving epistle is this epistle to the Galatians, which was written after he had departed from Corinth and while he had already been to Antioch, as we contend here that this epistle was written during Paul's sojourn there, which is recorded in Acts 18, verse 22. Even later, when writing to Romans, while he was in the Troad, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20, Paul made it a point in the opening chapters of his epistle to explain that those who would be justified by God are those who lived by the faith in Christ and not by the law, as he quoted Habakkuk and said, as it is written, but the just will live by faith. As we had often explained during our presentation of the book of Acts, 
offered here two years ago. The Book of Acts records a religious transition from the rituals of Moses to the faith in Christ and from the dispensation of the Levitical priesthood to the reconciliation of dispersed Israel. One cannot understand the full course of the transition without first understanding the chronology of Paul's epistles in relation to the accounts of the book of Acts. For that reason, because they don't understand it. Many denominational Christians pluck verses up and take them out of context, not having a clue of the historical development of Christian doctrine under the apostles. Paul must have realized at this point in his ministry that there could not be two separate bodies of Christ. If Israel and Judah were ever to be made into one stick, as the prophet Ezekiel describes. Therefore, once we understand what Paul meant by the term works of the law, we can see that Paul's position was the correct position when it is compared to the words of the prophets, especially in places such as Daniel chapter 9, Ezekiel chapter 37, and even in Habakkuk. But there is also another dynamic, which is evident in Paul's writing here, and sometimes his rhetorical language is difficult to understand. Here Paul is explaining that he had scolded Peter for having been eating with the uncircumcised and ceasing to do so once certain men had come to him from James. Then he says, if you, being a Judean, live like a foreigner and not like a Judean, how do you compel the nations to imitate the Judeans? The Greek word for live like a foreigner is ethnikos, which means to act like those of the nations. Then below, in verse 16, Paul infers that Judeans should know that a man is not deemed righteous from rituals of the law. With this, Paul is actually inferring that true Judeans who have turned to Christ have abandoned the rituals of the law and that those who insist on maintaining the rituals of the law are therefore acting like foreigners and not true Judeans. It was the Edomites who were the Judaizers, and they were foreigners. Paul says, we, Judeans by nature, and not wrongdoers from the nations, and we will stop right there. The last clause may have been rendered wrongdoers or sinners of the nations. Paul is saying that the true Judeans are not sinners. Judeans by nature are not sinners. But that the sinners are from among the nations. 
Of course, all men are sinners. However, the Israelites of Judea, keeping the law, had propitiation for their sin until the passion of the Christ. And then, upon turning to Christ, he became their propitiation for sin. Furthermore, people who were never under the old covenant cannot sin, because, as Paul explained in Romans, sin is not accounted where there is no law. And the law was given only to the children of Israel. The language Paul uses here further helps to establish that by the phrase, the nations, Paul is referring to the nations of the dispersions of the children of Israel, who abandoned the covenant to which they were bound and who were therefore considered sinners, at least until they had turned to Christ. Because before they turned to Christ, having abandoned the old covenant, they have no propitiation whatsoever for their sin. In this context, only they could be considered sinners of the nations, since there is no scriptural application for anyone else. We, Judeans by nature, and not wrongdoers from the nations, knowing that a man is not deemed righteous from rituals of law, if not through the faith of Yahshua Christ. And it means exactly what it says. As Paul asserts, the true Judeans of his time should know that a man cannot be found righteous by the law. The last clause of this passage may have been, if perhaps not through the faith of Yahshua Christ, where Paul seems to be explaining that if a man is not deemed righteous in Christ, neither can he be deemed righteous by the rituals or the works of the law. In other words, with the advent of Christ, there no longer is any propitiation for sin for those keeping the law of Moses. Continuing verse 16, we then have relied on Christ in order that we would be deemed righteous from the faith of Christ and not from rituals of law, since not any flesh shall be deemed righteous from rituals of law. And here, once again, Paul asserts that true Judeans relying in Christ no longer relied on the rituals of the law, of which circumcision was a part. Therefore, Paul is not considering to be true Judeans any of those in Judea who would not turn to Christ and who would claim to be keepers of the law for their justification. The words of Christ in the Gospel and in the Revelation inform us of this same thing. As for no flesh being justified by the law, we may read from Psalm. 143, which is a prayer of David. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness, and enter not into judgment with thy servant, 
For in thy sight shall no man living be justified. No man may be justified without the mercy of Yahweh found in Christ. Every man requiring the mercy of God for justification should indeed be humble before God and man. In the book of Enoch, in chapter 80 of the edition by Richard Lawrence, I'm not sure exactly where it is in Charles's version. The prophet is depicted as relating the instructions which he had received to his own son, son Methuselah. And the text says in verse 8, And they said unto me, Explain everything to Methuselah thy son, and inform all thy children that no flesh shall be justified before the Lord, for he is their creator. I haven't yet been able to locate the fragment in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It may not have survived. In the Christogenian New Testament, the Greek word, erdon, Strong's number 2041, is everywhere translated literally as either a work or a deed, except where Paul is explicitly referring to the works of the law, where 16 times plural forms of the word ergon are translated as rituals in phrases such as ta erga, the rituals all of which, all 16 times, of which are in the epistles to the Romans, to the Galatians, and to the Hebrews. Paul, in the context of each of those passages, certainly means to refer to those rituals which the law prescribed in ordinances and which had been done away with in Christ. And that's what he's referring to in Ephesians 2.15, Colossians 2.14, and Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Checking on Sayer's Greek English lexicon of the New Testament, the remarks made by Joseph Thayer, who does good in a lot of areas, but not in this one, the remarks made by Thayer show that Thayer did not realize this application because his explanations of ergon under these passages are odd, considering the context in which the word appears in these cases. He basically only says that in Paul's writings, ergonomu, or works of the law, are works demanded by and agreeing with the law, citing many of these same passages which we have translated as rituals of the law, wherever we saw those words, erga nomu. By saying agreeing with in his definition, Thayer creates his own antinomian religion, because Paul never disagreed with the law. Farah Fenton deserves credit in this one respect, and I never read his Bible until after translating 
the Christogenia New Testament. But when I did read it, I realized an appreciation for Fenton because in this respect, in his translation of the Bible, he did fully realize that the references made by Paul to the works of the law were references to the prescribed rituals of the Old Testament, and his translation reflects that realization. In the Hebrew of the Masoretic text, there are several Hebrew words which are often translated into the English versions as work or service. However, for this discussion, none of them are important. But by examining the language of the Septuagint, we can indeed see precisely what Paul had meant by the phrase, works of the law. Where the King James Version, in the book of Numbers, chapter 3, verse 7, has the words, the service of the tabernacle. It reads in the Greek of the Septuagint, ta erga, keskenes, the works of the tabernacle. Similar phrases appear in the King James Version in Numbers chapter 4, verse 4, verse 30, verse 39, where the same word, often translated as service, is translated as work in verse 39 of that chapter. In all of these places, the Greek Septuagint has the phrase ta erga, or the works, erga is a plural form of the word ergon, or work. And we see the Greek word ergon three times in the Septuagint at Numbers 4, verse 47, where the King James has, from 30 years old and upward, even unto 50 years old, everyone that came to do the service, and at that place the Septuagint has ergon, of the ministry, and at that place the Septuagint has ergon, or ergon, ergon in the plural, and the service, and again, erga, a plural form, a plural form of the burden in the tabernacle of the congregation. So Numbers 4, 44, Numbers 4, verse 47, the Septuagint has ergon, or work, three times, where the King James Version has service twice, or the word ministry. And the words were spoken in reference to all of the things which the priests did in the temple pertaining to the rituals of the law, whether it be the making of sacrifices, the keeping, or, or the keeping of um, manna. Uh, I'm sorry, the keeping of the showbread, that the um, the burning of incense, the offering of oblations, or anything else the priests did were called the works of the law the works of the tabernacle, the works of the ministry. That had a profound impact. The Septuagint had a profound impact on Paul's language when he spoke in reference to things in the Old Testament. Now these examples from the book of Numbers are only a few examples, and there are many others throughout the Old Testament scriptures. For instance, in Breton's Se- Breton's English Septuagint, we read in 2 Chronicles 23.18, and Yoday, the priest, 
committed the works of the house of the Lord, and that word is Ergon, into the hand of the priests and Levites. And he reestablished the courses of the priests and Levites, which David appointed over the house of the Lord. And he appointed them to offer whole burnt offerings to the Lord, as it is written in the Lord Moses, with gladness and with songs by the hand of David. So the works, ta erga, of the house of the Lord are the rituals which the priests performed in the temple. If the usage in the Septuagint of the word ergon, which in the plural is works, is not enough to prove that by works of the law, Paul was referring only to the temple, rit- temple rituals and the ceremonial ordinances of the law, there is further and contemporary evidence contemporary to Paul in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It can be established with all certainty that the writings of the Qumran sect found in the Dead Sea Scrolls were made during the period of Roman occupation in Judea and prior to the final revolt of Jerusalem resulting in the destruction of the temple, which was between roughly 65 B.C. and 65 A.D. We have established that Paul was writing this epistle shortly after 52 A.D., and therefore the Qumran scrolls almost certainly predate Paul's epistles. Presenting part four of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans here last spring, we said the following. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is a phrase which is a title for one of the more widely known scrolls usually identified as 4QMMT. This scroll is sometimes called the Sectarian Manifesto, as it is in the book, The Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation by Wise, Abag, and Cook. In that volume, in an introduction to 4QMMT, which consists of the Dead Sea Scrolls, fragments 4Q394 through 4Q399, the book says that in all of antiquity, only the sectarian manifesto and Paul's letters to the Galatians and Romans discuss the connection between works and righteousness. And of course, we would assert that Wilo was not phrased in the same man- in the same manner. A major component of the ministry of Christ had the purpose of illustrating that same distinction, as well as the Epistle of James. The introduction in the book, found on page 454, continues by explaining that MMT for the Hebrew words Mixat Meas HaTorah is an acronym for Hebrew words meaning some of the works of the law. The subject of the scroll is, of course, the rituals of the law. Therefore, we see that the phrase, Mas HaTorah, or works of the law, was used by others at a time nearly contemporary to that of Paul in relation to the rituals of the Old Testament law. One place in the prophets 
where it is explicitly explained that the Messiah would do away with these works of the law is in Daniel chapter 9. There is a messianic prophecy where we read the purpose of Yahweh explained to Daniel for Jerusalem that 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression. That didn't mean that Judah didn't stop sinning. And to make an end of sins, but Judah didn't stop sinning. And to make reconciliation for iniquity, but Judah didn't stop sinning. And to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Then it says in verse 27, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, speaking of that same Messiah. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Whereby we see that the Old Testament sacrifices became invalid in Christ. The covenant being confirmed was the new covenant promised in Jeremiah chapter 31 and in Ezekiel chapter 37, among other places. Ezekiel 37:26, Yahweh says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Similar language, prophesying a new covenant, is found elsewhere in the words of that prophet. From Ezekiel chapter 31, a passage which Paul quoted in his epistles to both the Romans and the Hebrews. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, saith Yahweh. That's why there's no propitiation under that old covenant. They broke it. And it was promised to be replaced. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward part and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the dispensation of the law would change. And the rituals and the laws in ordinances described as the works of the law would no longer be required of the children of Israel. Paul explains in Romans chapter 7 how Yahweh had released Israel from these things when he wrote, For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, 
ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. That must be because the husband died. Or there's no correlation, and Paul is not right for making it. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. The fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9 becomes manifest in Romans chapter 7. Where it is realized that Yahweh God, dying in Christ, had freed Israel from the law to which the nation had been bound since Exodus chapter 19. And therefore, in this manner, did he himself finish the transgression and make an end of sins and make reconciliation for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness. The children of Israel all sin, but they have an intercessor in Christ, as the Apostle John explains in his first epistle, and as Paul also explained in Romans, where there is no law, sin is not accounted. So the children of Israel are no longer condemned by the letter of the law, and there's no longer any need for any of those rituals. That by the phrase, works of the law, Paul only referred to those rituals and ceremonies conducted by the Levitical priests is also evident in his explanation in the epistle to the Hebrews that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek and that the priesthood being changed there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Now it's in our hearts, and there's no rituals there, as Paul asserts at Hebrews 7.12. But the commandments of the law have not changed, and Christ himself professes that if you love me, keep my commandments, which is something which Paul had also taught frequently in his epistles. Therefore, anyone who asserts that there is a requirement that any ritual is necessary for the salvation of the children of Israel is a liar and a Judaizer. And that would include not only the obvious sacrifices, but other rituals as well, which were performed under the law, such as circumcision, or water baptism, or even any of the so-called, the, the Catholic so-called sacraments, which are all basically imposed by Judaizers on the early Christian church and the pagan priests supported it. 
all rituals and all ceremonial requirements for the for the propitiation of sin or the perceived attainment of righteousness are done away with in Christ. There's no replacement rituals for the Old Testament rituals that were done away. The history of Old Testament Israel should be sufficient evidence that man cannot propitiate God through rituals, and neither can he save himself by his own devices. However, we as a people shall never learn no lesson until first we learn to reject all of the lies of the Jews. Verse 17, Galatians chapter 2, if anybody's forgotten, I'm sorry. Now, if seeking to be deemed righteous in Christ, we ourselves are also found to be wrongdoers. Then is Christ a minister of failure? Certainly not. And here, Paul's words are in accordance with those of the Apostle John found in 1 John chapter 2. My children, I write these things to you in order that you do not do wrong. And if one should do wrong, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous Yahshua Christ, and he is a propitiation on behalf of our sins, yet not for ours only, but for the whole society. And of course, since only the children of Israel were ever under the law, only the children of Israel could be referred to as being forgiven of sins. And the same works for the new covenant, because only the children of Israel have the law of God written in their hearts. So John talks not only about the Judeans, but for all of the children of God scattered abroad, as he refers to the ancient dispersions of the Israelites in his gospel in John 11.52, which are those nations of the seed of Abraham that Paul describes in Romans chapter 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. They had already, the Israelite tribes had already become the whole society by the time of Christ the Parthians, the Romans, the Dorian Greeks, the tribes of the Germanic Galatahi, the Celtic tribes, the children of Israel were the dominant populations by that time of all of those nations. Verse 18, they were the whole society by that time. That was the promise to Abraham, that he, that his seed would inherit the nations. Paul in Romans chapter 4 tells us that it was already fulfilled. Verse 18, if I could ever get to it. 
For if I again build these things, which I have destroyed, I continue a transgressor myself. If Paul abandons the righteousness which is in Christ for the persuasion that he could be justified by the rituals of the law, then he remains a sinner since there is no more justification in the law. As it says in Habakkuk chapter 2, in a passage which Paul had later quoted in Romans chapter 1, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it surely will come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul is lifted up, which is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Those people whose souls aren't upright in them have not accepted the propitiation of Christ, and they think that they could propitiate God on their own. Habakkuk had received those words as an answer to a prayer in which he had said, Therefore, the law is slack, and judgment does never go forth, where he also described the unrighteous sacrifices being made in Jerusalem at the end of Habakkuk chapter 1. So Yahweh's answer to that prayer is that the just shall live by his faith, and not by the righteousness found in the law. Galatians 2.19 For I, through law, have died in law, in order that in Yahweh I shall live. I have been crucified with Christ. Now I live no longer, but Christ lives in me, and that I live now in flesh, in faith I live, in that of the Son of God, who having loved me, then surrendered himself on my behalf. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul had written, For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then all were dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Likewise, Paul had written in Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? Know ye not, that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, not into water. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, 
that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. The understanding which Paul exhibits in these chapters is derived from the words of the prophets in places such as Hosea chapter 13, where Yahweh says that I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. And from Isaiah chapter 53, where he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet did we esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And from Isaiah chapter 54, where we read, For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For Yahweh has called thee, meaning Israel, as a woman, the wife, forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, a wife of God's youth. When thou wast refused, saith thy God, for a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little in a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer. However, all of this can only be understood in the light of the other messianic prophecies, such as those of Isaiah chapters 7 and 9, where it says, first in chapter 7, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God walks with us. In the opening passages of Matthew, it says, the angel speaking to his mother, they shall call his name Emmanuel and told her to call his name Yahshua, or Jesus. They shall say of him, God walks with us, is the meaning of that passage. And then, in Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase in his government there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. The Lord sent a word unto Jacob, and it is lighted upon Israel. When we put all of these messianic prophecies together, 
including those from Daniel chapter 9, we can only come to the conclusion that Yahweh God himself became incarnate on earth as Joshua Christ and died as the husband in order to free Israel, the wife, from the judgments of the law, as Paul had explained in Romans chapter 7. Because he died to preserve Israel from a judgment of death, all Israel should consider themselves dead with him, as Paul also asserts, which is in accord with the prophecy in Hosea, where it is said that when Ephraim spoke trembling, in other words, when he was humble, he exalted himself in Israel, but when he offended in Baal, he died. Hosea 13.1 and also in Isaiah, where Yahweh said, And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. In Isaiah 28. And again, in Isaiah 52, You have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. Therefore, in the prophets, all of the children of Israel were accounted dead in the law, just as Paul explained. And they only have life by the mercy which is in Christ. This is what Paul was explaining to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Galatians, and others, all of whom were Israel according to the flesh, but none of whom were ever Jews. The Jews were Israel in name only, because they were mostly converted Edomites. They were not the Israel of God. Verse 21. I would not refuse the favor of Yahweh. If righteousness is true law, then Christ has died for no purpose. As it says in Isaiah chapter 45, Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. And in verse 19, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not under the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely one shall say, In Yahweh I have righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified, and shall glory. It won't be in rituals. It won't be in the works of men's hands. It will be in our God. They were being put off in punishment and alienated from their God. So the children of Israel failed to be justified by the law. That is what Paul is saying here. The law is put away. The works of the law are put away. We can't pick them up again. The children of Israel would find reconciliation to God and justification in Christ 
as Paul explains in Romans chapter 3. For all have done wrong and fall short of the honor of Yahweh, being freely accepted by his, by his favor through the redemption that is in the hands of Christ Yahshua, whom Yahweh set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood, for display of his justice by the means of the predomission of forthcoming sin. And then, he says in verse 28 of that chapter, we therefore conclude by reasoning, by the reasoning of reading these prophecies, of reading the word of God. We therefore conclude by reasoning, a man to be accepted by faith, upon or without the rituals of the law. But because justification is apart from law, that does not mean that we should disregard the law. As Christ had said, if you love me, keep my commandments, Paul concludes. Do we then nullify the law by faith? Certainly not. Rather, we establish the law. And the Apostle John was teaching the same thing in different words in 1 John chapter 2. The Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament, together with the understanding that by works of the law, Paul was referring to the rituals and ceremonial ordinances through which Israel had sought justification and failed, and not to the commandments themselves, which Paul consistently upheld. These things completely vindicate all of the positions on sin and a law which were set forth by Paul of Tarsus. That concludes our presentation of Galatians chapter 2. Praise Yahweh and good night. Thank <laughs> you.